Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, and with social distancing and then lockdown in Melbourne, our worlds have turned a little more to the local. If we're lucky enough to be able to leave the house for some exercise every day, maybe we've also taken the opportunity to tread the footpaths and the tracks in our own suburbs, and become a little bit more familiar with the patterns of their landscapes, and even something about their histories as well. For my own part, I've been slipping most days after work down to the Darabin Creek, heading along my side street 10 minutes or so until I hit the walking track on the east bank and then tracing its reaches north and south as time and weather will allow. Descending into it, it's another world where everything else seems to fall away, finding comfort in its familiar sight lines and its serpentine folds, learning new things about country. Our creeks ribbon through suburbia, and while you're never far away from the hum or the roar of traffic in the distance, you do get a totally different view. The city mostly turns its back on its creeks. You pass a weird kind of netherworld of light industry and storage yards, cyclone fences, barbed wire, keep-out signs, ropes and floodlines. But look at it the other way. It's also the front of something and your perspective can change. The suburbs look and feel different when you stare back at them from the vantage point of the green corridor. It's also the smell of water and weeds, eucalyptus and mud. It's a play of light around dawn or dusk, wine-red sunsets rebounding off the water or as a backdrop through the trees. It's the seasons passing, from late summer at the start of lockdown through the middle of the year when winter closed in and the night fell early, to this Melbourne spring of ups and downs, torrential one day, temperate the next, matching our moods. It's also a play of sound. Not just frogs and crickets and currawongs, water bubbling over a stone ford, people walking dogs, the scrunch and patter of footfall on rock and mud and grass, but it's also playing a particular pandemic soundtrack. More joggers huffing and puffing past, more cyclists, frantic bells approaching, whizzing dangerously by, more kids riding new bikes, more youngsters actually seeing a tadpole for the first time, snatch conversations, a posse of surreptitious teenagers drinking stubbies and whacking golf balls at the bottom end of a park, a heightened sense of people passing at a social distance, giving each other an awkward birth, on their phone to their elderly parents giving Zoom IT advice, worried about their jobs, or what's for dinner, again.
Nearly a century ago, when urban development in the 1920s started re-inscribing the divide between the city and the country in Melbourne, Robert Henderson Kroll wrote The Walker's Bible, a book called The Open Road in Victoria, Being the Ways of Many Walkers. There were one, two or three day trips, just up and down Collins Street for a stroll if you liked, but also from Box Hill to Heidelberg or Berwick to Belgrave or Hurstbridge to Eltham. The walker's gain, said Kroll, was what lies in between, the harvest of the quiet eye, the details of nature's plan. In this episode, Sophie Couchman takes up Kroll's advice, armed with sturdy boots, a good map or two and a sharp eye for the lay of the land, Sophie takes us on an unexpected tour of her own neighbourhood. So I've been thinking about water. I've been thinking about how it rises out of natural springs, flows down slopes and into gullies, forms into streams and creeks, and flows out to sea. I've been thinking about it falling on rooftops, along gutters and down drain pipes, and along enormous stormwater drains. I've been thinking about how the flow of water has shaped where people want to live. We might want a house by the seaside, or to live on the edge of a lake, but few of us want to live by a swamp. I've been thinking about what role stormwater drains have in all this. My name is Dr Sophie Couchman and I'm a historian and curator. This podcast is about a particular stormwater drain, the Shakespeare Grove Main Drain, formerly called the St Kilda Main Drain, and how it has shaped St Kilda. So I'm standing on a small footbridge. To one side is a pocket handkerchief-sized suburban park, complete with play equipment that leads to Packington Street. On the other is a small street lined with sweet little 19th century workers' cottages that leads to Duke Street. Underneath me is a deep, bluestone-lined stormwater drain. It's probably about two and a half metres wide, maybe three, and two metres deep, The walls of the drain are concrete and sprayed with colourful graffiti and tagging. Looking towards Nepean Highway, you can see another drain, just in the distance, running into this one. Large peppercorn trees and a gum tree overhang the drain. The water is running quite fast. It's been raining over the last few days. It's clear, but there's never any bad smell. It's actually very peaceful here. Unlike a river or a stream, the drain is almost silent. The wonderful thing about this drain is that it's hidden in plain sight. The wooden footbridge and an Aboriginal mural nearby are the only places that draw our attention to the drain. Everything else seems to intentionally draw our attention away from its existence. Although it's possible to see the drain, through fences and under hoardings, we don't actually see it. 
My exploration of the drain started on foot as a method of exploring St Kilda in new ways during our pandemic lockdowns. This involved wandering down the streets that run on either side of the drain and then ducking down laneways, gazing down driveways and peering over fences looking for evidence of the drain. Despite St Kilda's high property prices, about two blocks of the drain are still uncovered and open to the air. My explorations on foot took me as far as Barclay Street, where the drain disappeared underground. But changing direction slightly, I found I had a clear line of sight all the way to the sea. Underground, the drain follows the diagonal path in Talbot Reserve to Albert Street. It follows Albert Street under Carlisle Street to Ackland Street, where it joins Shakespeare Grove. It actually runs to the right of Shakespeare Grove, alongside the southern edge of Luna Park. And finally, it flows under Marine Parade and out to sea at Brooks Jetty. Back at home, I got online to find the drain on historic maps. As part of developing Melbourne's sewerage system in the 1890s, the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works created an extraordinary collection of very detailed maps. These maps show, with descriptions, the entire drain network from Chapel Street to the sea, but also its subsidiary drains. One that flows underground into the main drain from the north, and another, largely open at that time, that flowed from the south and into the main drain just downstream from the footbridge you get an incredible sense of the huge network of stormwater drains that run largely unseen under the whole of Melbourne, only visible in a few special places. I was astounded to discover that one of these places was the basement of the St Kilda Town Hall. Due to the pandemic, I haven't been able to see it myself, but I was fortunate to be introduced to somebody who has. And to my delight, is just as interested in St Kilda's drain as me. My name's Isaac Herman and I was born and well basically raised here in St Kilda and my first years were on High Street St Kilda, just um, a stone's throw from the Shakespeare Grove main drain. Isaac is an independent historian and also used to work for Parks and Gardens. My interest in St Kilda's drainage systems really happened back in mid-2015 with the rezoning of of the area's flood zone, which turned out to be a bit scary because we'd never been zoned in a flood area before. That's when I started to actively research and take an interest in flooding and drainage throughout the whole area. Isaac was able to describe for me what it was like to go and view the drain under the town hall. So if you're entering from the town hall, the old entrance, immediately on your your right, you have a beautiful room. In the far corner of the room, there's a trap door taking you down a stairway to the basement of the town hall, which is basically a rabbit warren of little nooks and crannies and alcoves. It's pretty dark and a bit sort of dark, dank, dusty. So what you see in that end room is basically you just see a concrete curve, a long concrete curve, and that's the concrete surfacing of the brick barrel vault that covers the bluestone drain. So the drain was clearly well developed by 1897 when the Board of Works mapped it. So I continued tracing it back through older and older historical maps. Till finally, on Kearney's 1855 map of Melbourne and its suburbs, 
there's a conspicuously empty space where the drain was eventually built. I was so excited to have narrowed down the date of the drain's construction, but disappointed because I'd hoped to see a watercourse or perhaps some swampland marked. But there was nothing. I started digging deeper. Topographic maps clearly show the drain surrounded by higher ground, but geological maps show that the same quaternary riverine deposits that surround the Elwood Canal-Elster Creek system also surround the St Kilda main drain area. Evidence a river or stream flowed through there in the recent geological past. Isaac has been tracing down St Kilda's natural springs, some of which he believes still flow into the St Kilda main drain. He was able to tell me more about what the land looked like before colonisation. Of course this was all an area of beautiful little ferny creeks and woodlands and what they called red gum flats. You had particularly around the coastal areas what they, what um, geologists and geographers call the sunk land which contained basically lowland wetlands, little lagoons and swamps which were of course a treasure to the indigenous people, the Yalukut-Willem clan of the Bunwurrung tribe. Some of those swamps would have naturally drained, overflowed through the, those what was regarded as the red gum flats and others were, um, would have been constantly flowing. We know from early descriptions of wetlands how amazingly full of, of water, of native water life they were. To my amazement, he also told me... Native fish have been sighted in the Shakespeare Grove main drain. Uh, I, I believe I was told by, by a, a young naturalist that there were also um, native invertebrates and ones that perhaps that they haven't even classified as yet. <laughs> that may have found their, their habitat niche in the, the, darker, the darker corners of the, of the drain. The freshwater dreaming mural on the western side of the St Kilda Elstonwick Baptist Church in Packington Street is a modern Aboriginal reimagining of that pre-invasion landscape. Commissioned by the church, Viv Parry, an artist therapy facilitator, Mark Hammersley and Auntie B brought together members of two recovery centres, the Galliamble Men's Group and the Winya Alupna Women's Group, to create the mural. Painted in bright colours, a stream of water bisects the mural, surrounded and filled with native fish, animals and plants. A large eagle sits on the left. There are also handprints and a sky with a setting sun that hovers above the water scene. Viv told me more about it. The water of the freshwater dreaming tidal came from the, the main drain and the water that flowed through. And, and we thought about, as we painted, that this is where the Bunurung people in all likelihood would have hunted and fished and moved along in due course during the period of the year. And we sort of thought about them and what they were doing. We didn't want to paint things that didn't exist in that St Kilda area. So thanks to the City of Port Phillips resources, uh, we were able to access that. And I, I just met with the men and women every week and, and I just asked them to choose something from that list of animals and, and plants, flowers, trees, birds, what they felt they would like to paint. The Aboriginal artists came from all over Australia. So they consulted with the Bunwurrung Foundation, the traditional owners of the land, for approval and advice before they started the project. 
the two things that they felt very strongly about was that no human figure was represented on the mural. And secondly, that Bunjil, who is the creator, um, had to be drawn very large. And that's why Bunjil is always represented by an eagle. And that's why there is a very prominent and large eagle on that mural. So how did the main drain come to be built? In December 1857, the St Kilda Council published a notice in The Age, notifying residents that construction of a drain was beginning between Chapel and Barclay Streets. According to Isaac, there'd been drownings due to flooding in previous years. In April that year, 77 residents of the Vale Street, Packington Street, Nepean Highway area sent a signed petition to the council calling for the existing channel to be lowered. They argued the area, colloquially called the swamp, was most injurious to the property and health of the inhabitants. The next month, the Board of Health sent an engineer to report on drainage and advise about the construction of a drain. The area south of Inkerman Road is a large swamp, which after continuous or heavy rains, receives the washings of the upper ground and which, as well as the offensive condition of the low streets in the locality, cannot fail to exercise a prejudicial effect upon the health of the inhabitants of that portion of St Kilda. There were many areas of stagnant water and poor drainage. Swine were kept in objectionable conditions. There were piles of manure, dead fowl... ..and accumulated refuse strewed about on occupied plots of ground, all tending to produce injurious effects upon the public health. He warned the area was at risk of attacks of fever. Disease at this time was viewed in terms of miasma theory, a belief that poisonous vapours associated with foul air, damp environments and poor hygiene were at fault. It wasn't until later in the century that scientists came to understand the part that germs played in that process. The role of engineers was therefore to get water out of cities as fast as possible. Drains were the answer. But by 1861, residents of the lowlands were again complaining to the council. They were still being regularly flooded out during winter and heavy rains. So that year, further works were done on the drain and the final length out to sea commenced. The City of Port Phillip Heritage Centre still hold the original tender documents. They're written in scrawly writing in black ink on eggshell blue paper. They describe in minute detail the materials and techniques required to construct the drain. This contract extends from low water mark in the open beach for a length of 119 feet more or less will be formed in accordance with cross-section B of best bluestone, large-sized fitted rubble entirely free from honeycomb. Break out all the exposed joints of side walls and point them in with Portland cement neatly tucked. The entire length of the drain from its mouth to Ackland Street on both sides will be fenced in with a four-railed sawn fence four feet six inches high above ground. These works must be done to the entire satisfaction of the surveyor. In the margins are small sketches with measurements for a footbridge and details of the reinforcing required to stop an outhouse abutting the drain from falling in. Early maps show the drain was open except where it passed under a road. Over time, much of it was covered up. 
When St Kilda Town Hall was built in 1890, that section of the southern subsidiary drain was enclosed. There was soon pressure to cover other sections. In 1904, a resident complained that the portion of the drain which runs through the state school's grounds is neither cemented nor tarred. So different from the portion under the town hall, which is effectively arched over in brick and cement. What is good for the corporation should be beneficial for the poor school kiddies who daily play and eat their modest lunches over a noisome sewer which is neither tarred, cemented nor covered. The drain wasn't the static structure that I'd first imagined. As Isaac describes... So it would have started off as a natural little creek bed or gully. It would have been enlarged into a drainage ditch or drainage channel. The next step, it would have been lined with, most often with bluestone, but jointed with no mortar in between. Next step, it may have been, in some cases, it would have been pointed up and mortared between the bluestone. And a bit later on in areas where the push for development was greater, then they would have covered over the, um, the bluestone channel with a brick barrel vault where you had open drains passing under roads, then they would have been actually bluestone, beautiful bluestone culverts. Um, in some cases, in other cases, bluestone fords. St Kilda's natural environment was transformed by British settlement. Sand from the beach was excavated, peat in the swamps and lowlands was mined, and then the swamps were drained. But the nature of British settlement was also shaped by the underlying environment. If you overlay Kearney's 1855 map with the topographic map, you can see how early settlement followed the topography of the land. Like the rest of Melbourne, the wealthy of St Kilda built on the hills and rises, leaving the lowlands to the poorer classes. This can be seen in surviving 19th century architecture. The Alma Road Ridge is lined with stunning mansions but as you wander down through the back streets, the houses become smaller till you get to the charming and no doubt cramped wooden workers' cottages of the lowlands. Now, there were plenty of reasons why no one wanted to live on the lower grounds and near the drain. One newspaper correspondent reported that walking near the drain in 1869 was like swallowing a violent emetic and warned that it is just the place of fever to breed in and for cholera to fasten on and gain vigour and spread from. Refuse, sewerage, dead animals were all dropped in the drain. The lowland area around the drain was known as the Balaclava Flat and ironically still didn't have running water in 1883. At this time, it was known for its criminals, low and objectionable characters, drunken assaults, disorderly houses and the greatest of sins, their support for the Labour Party. There were class battles between those on the hill and those on the flats. A proposal in 1875 to move the post office from the corner of Alma Road and Nepean Highway, a mere 500 metres down the hill, to a more centrally located position on Inkerman Street corner, led to a petition from over 200 outraged ratepayers from the hill. They argued not all use the services of the post office equally. We, the undersigned Burgesses of St Kilda, beg respectfully to submit, for your consideration, the hardship and injustice involved in this arrangement with the principal inhabitants of St Kilda, that is, 
to those who reside on the hill parts, to whom it would be very inconvenient to go so far as the flat, either to transmit messages or to post letters. We beg, therefore, in the first place, to call your attention to the fact that almost the entire of the business of the telegraph and post offices of St Kilda lies with the residents on the hill portion of St Kilda. The cottagers who reside in that portion of St Kilda known as the flat seldom, if ever, require telegraphic communication. For proof of this, we beg to refer you to the statistics of the St Kilda Telegraph Office. The post office relocated regardless. An even larger furore arose in 1887 when the council proposed moving the St Kilda Town Hall to its current site on the corner of Nepean Highway and Carlisle Street. This site was then the market reserve and also used as a rubbish tip and municipal storage yard. The southern subsidiary drain ran right through it. Those on the hill wanted it again near the corner of Alma Road and Nepean Highway, and others a third option. It eventually went to a public vote, and the current site was selected. Pretty lucky given the council had already set aside the land for this purpose. And then in World War II, when wealthy St Kilda residents were constructing bomb shelters in their backyards to protect them from Japanese attack, Mrs A. Green wrote to the town clerk on behalf of residents near Blanche and Vale Streets, asking for modifications to the main drain so that they too could have a bomb shelter. All our yards are too small to put in slip trenches. If you are willing, would you kindly fix up fences of the drain facing the lanes and roads by making them into gates to be easily opened at a minute's notice? And also to put down a few steps at each entrance so as the aged people would not fall and get hurt. The council was not spurred into action, the risk of flash flooding perhaps higher in their minds than a Japanese attack. But even today, the area around the main drain between Chapel and Barclay Streets is a bit of a mishmash. There are smart gentrified houses and modern apartment blocks, but also pockets of old warehouses and light industry. And the area between Nepean Highway and Barclay Street is notorious for its street prostitution. More than one local resident has told me the drain is well used for drug deals and as an escape route from pursuing police. Biblical rain today. The irony of the St Kilda main drain, or the Shakespeare Grove main drain as it's known today, is that it still floods, quite regularly. According to Isaac... Every 10 years or so, but notable rainfalls and, and flash flooding, on average, since, since colonisation, would have to be once every two years. That often, that frequently when, it, when it's averaged out. A council worker told Isaac about a major flood in 2011. This person was marooned on a ledge outside the library. The underground basement was all entirely submerged, um, so you had floating cars there. Out in the street, Carlisle Street, they saw a fire engine just floating down the street. That's how, <laughs> that's how, how epic and dramatic that, um, that flood was. The hard and impermeable surfaces of cities speed up the flow of water as it cascades off roofs, down drain pipes, off roads and footpaths. It actually makes flash flooding more likely, not less, 
and causes additional problems with pollution. Climate change poses other challenges. So we need systems that will really move large or absorb or hold large volumes of water, whereas the system we have of drains basically channels water very quickly to the bay, carrying a very polluted load, which is perhaps the worst environmental outcome one could opt for. So civic engineers today are introducing soak pits and constructing wetland sinks to slow down the flow of water and create buffers that can absorb and filter it. What started off for me as idle curiosity about a local drain has changed the way I see the city. Browsing some of the websites of Melbourne's urban explorers, such as the Cave Clan, gives you the wonderful opportunity to view the extraordinary world of drains that lie under our feet. But I also have a much greater appreciation of how drains shape our built environment and also its character. But what has really been the most wonderful is the window that they provide into our pre-colonial landscapes. I really will never look at a drain cover the same way again. And now for some final thank yous. I'd particularly like to thank Isaac Herman for generously sharing his research on St Kilda's drainage history and for introducing me to the wonderful Viv Parry. Thanks to both of you for your interviews. A special thank you to Kay Rowland for sending me digitised copies of the historical correspondence held at the Port Phillip Heritage Centre in the middle of Melbourne's second lockdown. I'd also like to thank my voice actors, Graham Prowse as the engineer in 1857, Jonathan O'Donnell as the council bureaucrat in 1861, Rebecca Skinner as the resident concerned about the poor kiddies of St Kilda Primary School in 1904, Cassandra Prowse as the resident overcome by the stench of the main drain in 1869, Hugh McVicker as one of the Burgesses on the Hill in 1875, and finally Chiara Condotta as Mrs A. Green concerned about Japanese attack in 1942. Atmospheric sound came courtesy of BBC Sound Effects and also freesound.org, in particular recordings from Acclivity, Fazza and Javier Serrat. There's on-location audio recorded by me, as well as audio of the main drain during Biblical Rain, recorded by Alex Cowie. Finally, if you have any memories of St Kilda main drain, I'd love to hear them. You can contact me via my website, sophiecouchman.com.au. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.